0: Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department a podcast about trends, taste, brands, and products.
1: Hello, Amanda. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to episode 27 at the department here. Uh, you know, this is our third episode in our series on ought trends. Uh, you know, we keep alluding to the hipsters. Um, <laughs> so this is actually the episode where we're going to get into hipster culture and trends in the 2000s. And
0: it definitely won't be the last one because... Mm -hmm. Oh my God. There's so much to talk about. Even within hipster culture, it's like we had two Mm -hmm. parallel societies.
1: I agree. It's really
0: interesting to me.
1: (laughs) And it was really interesting to look back. And a lot of these articles that I read were think pieces that were happening during the time. There was a lot of, a lot of (laughs) negativity. Yeah. Um, and but there was a it's just really interesting to hindsight it mm-hmm. and to be able to see the parallels in the reasoning why this occurred, which I will get into, and you know, I spent a ton of time researching and reading articles, and like I said and like literally, it's like Harvard is coming out with articles on the hipster culture, and it's just so fascinating mm-hmm. well, before we get into it, I just want to remind everyone, um you know, if you have a hot tip or any funny hipster stories or some thought-provoking commentary, please uh, leave us a message on our hotline, which also is a, it's a, it's our hotline for the sister podcast, Amanda's Amazing Podcast, Clothes Horse. Um, so it will likely say Close Horse on it, but leave it for us and just say this is for the department. Mm-hmm. Uh, that phone number is 717-925-7417. You can also get that... Um, you can access it on our Instagram, which is, you know, doing is it's it's got a lot of, you know funny memes and inside jokes and little extensions and kind of what we're talking about, lots of visuals. Like we definitely encourage you to join and take pleasure in the work that is <laughs> done for this Instagram account. Uh, and then we also have a great website to reference um, any of the images and all of the show notes and all of the links and books that we reference. Um, that's the department.world. Lastly, uh, if you're enjoying the show, it always helps us if you leave a star rating and or a review on apple so amanda Mm -hmm. how did the hipster burn his mouth
0: i i I don't know on a crack pipe i'm not really sure
1: (laughs) he ate pizza before it was cool Uh, (laughs) that was actually funny because i kept i was like searching something else and for some reason the word like it was like hipster pizza kept coming up and i'm like what Wait, Wait, is this like a a joke we should know? Apparently it was a pretty popular joke. Wow, I had no
0: idea. I feel
1: so off. All right auto-populate what is it and I, I mean that's kind of what happens when we're doing a lot of research is you just let it auto-populate and let it roll <laughs> see what people are saying yeah um,
0: <laughs> I, I do that a lot actually
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're like what's trending in this
0: yeah um,
1: <laughs> so I'm going to talk a little bit about kind of the the origin story of the hipster um it's it's just a more of like a top level overview look on the hipster and then Amanda's going to go into some really important cultural phenomena that happened as well so the origin of the aughts hipster movement originated actually in part from the 90s alternative and indie subcultures that rejected corporations and consumerism so you know it was definitely like you know part grunge punk it was a lot of like the empire record kids that shop thrift stores and listen to pavement. Um, In a book on Wicker Park Chicago in the 90s, the sociologist Richard Lloyd documented how what he called neo-bohemia unwittingly turned into something else, the seedbed for post-1999 hipsterdom.
0: I mean, I just want to say Mm -hmm. a humble brag Uh
1: here. Did yeah.
0: live in Wicker Park in the late 90s.
1: You did.
0: I did. You remember when I told you how the one boyfriend was like, oh, um, we broke up because Amanda wants to pursue her career as a hipster? Uh, that was, in fact, because I had also moved to Wicker Park. I may as well have lived in a different country at that point. Have you read this
1: book? What's it called? Neo Bohemia. Art and commerce in the post-industrial city. I'm gonna check it out. I mean, I have yeah. too many books to read right now, but I'm I'll sure. put it yeah. on the list. <laughs> put, it, put it on the list. I mean, we'll you'll probably need to read up on the next topic anyway. Um, <laughs> it's just super hard to keep to keep up with sometimes. Um, but anyway, so Lloyd he draws parallels to 1920s Paris and New York City's Greenwich Village. Uh, he explores numerous facets that coalesce into creating a new bohemian enclave in Chicago's Wicker Park a neighborhood during the 1990s. Um, and it's kind of a narrowed in look at the microcosms of other neighborhoods that were also being cultivated in other places like Greenwich Village, Soho, Capitol Hill in Seattle, Mississippi Avenue in Portland, um, even in Brooklyn. You know, so creating these emerging epicenters for new economies of culture and capitalism that were actually attracted, attractive to neo-Bohemians, you know, like mm-hmm. coffee shop culture, music scene, thrift and indie shopping destinations, all those things, which in turn kind of caused trends that started to shape global cities. Um, so this created a subculture that would be the platform in which the 2000s hipster counterculture took off, as well as the reinventions of decaying districts by artists, was built on and mirrored in urban areas all throughout the aughts. So in many cases, this is how some of these key neighborhoods gained their relevance. The artists came in and gentrify and get priced out and displaced, just like the original locals before Mm -hmm, them, mm -hmm. (laughs) only to pick up a new spot and the cycle continues. So these neo-Bohemians moved into more dilapidated and industrial areas because the artist lofts and rent, there was artist lofts, which Mm -hmm. were, you know, kind of, in their their circles were kind of a cool vibe, but the rents were just low. Then in, when the 2000s hit and the industrial aesthetic was considered cool and nonconformist, this was the case of Williamsburg, where I lived in the early aughts until I moved to LA in 2016. Um, and the hipster, hipsters after um, them actually embraced that dilapidated and gritty um, environment Almost like cockroaches, they can kind of make anything habitable (laughs) and not just habitable, but desirable. And I'm not calling hipsters a cockroach because I I definitely associate myself with one, (laughs) but it's kind of, I think it's really interesting is that you do look around at some of these neighborhoods and they were not there, you know, I mean, and that's kind of what, um, gentrification is, but some of these neighborhoods were actually just so undesirable and so impossibly industrial, you know, you wouldn't have even thought to live in them, you know, in in the nineties. I mean,
0: Wicker Park was not nice. Now I, I hear it's fancy and there might even be like an Mm -hmm. urban outfitters over there or something, but it was pretty (laughs) dangerous. And, in relation to a lot of the rest of the city, it felt really off the beaten track. Like it was a little bit more complicated to get to the other side of town. And, you know, I remember like the week I moved to Chicago, one of my roommates friends was shot in a drive by in Wicker park. And that that's where it was at that point. There was a lot of Mm -hmm. gang activity. There was a lot of crime. It wasn't fancy. Like, like there was a, jewel osco grocery store and that was about it like yes then some coffee shop, like a coffee shop opened and a used bookstore and venues but it took a long time and then all of a sudden when the hipsters moved in everyone had to move out because everybody's apartment was being sold and turned into condos like the gentrification happened in like six months
1: it was pretty wild I I remember Williamsburg was very dangerous. I had been, (laughs) I had been chased multiple times in broad daylight. I had some guy like chase me down the street who clearly had a mental, mental issues, um, throwing um, rocks at me and calling, calling me like uh, bourgeois, even though I was like, you know, pretty gritty looking, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I, you know, I get it. I mean, I had to call the cops and everything on them. Um, but, you know, in general, you know, it wasn't really safe to walk, walk late at night, you know, mm-hmm. but it did, it it did start turning around and people were getting priced. Well, they were actually getting a lot of cash to move out of their apartments. <laughs> yeah. Like I would say anywhere from 30,000 to $60,000. Wow. That was happening kind of at the later end. Um, when people were making more money, I don't know if they were actually just a lot of people were also being priced out too, where the prices were just going up, but that we had a lot of, um, the rent control. So a lot of these rent control places, they were, they were paying people off to move out so that they could, you know, renovate. And then, yeah, Yeah. you're totally right. The dangerousness is something that was (laughs) very palatable. I remember my parents actually came to Williamsburg and they could not get out of there fast enough.
0: I mean, I remember there was this Kinko's in my neighborhood. (laughs) that was like, you didn't, you know, I rode my bike everywhere at that point and you wouldn't even want to ride your bike by this Kinko's because, you know, it was open 24 Mm -hmm. hours and it was like just everything bad that could happen after dark (gasps) happened at that Kinko's. Like, you know, there's like a lot of like drug dealing and prostitution and just like really wasted people, one time I was out and I had to, this is like, I'm still recovering from this. There was a kink. Mm-hmm. I had to stop at the Kinko's to use the bathroom. Oh my God. Yeah, no. <laughs> Kim, Kim, it was like blood mm. everywhere in there. Oh, and my, I, oh my God. I was like, yeah, I guess I'm just going to pee somewhere else. Like this is like, <laughs> I don't know. There was some sort of sense of urgency where like, even though it was only a few blocks from my house, I couldn't go back home and I didn't want to pee when I got to the bar. And I have no idea why any of that was happening. But like, that was the kind of neighborhood it was. And then yeah. like, I remember the turning point for Wicker Park in a lot of people's minds was when they built a Starbucks.
1: Mm, and yeah, absolutely. So
0: fast after that, then we were all moving to Ukrainian village, then no one could afford that. Then we were moving to Humboldt Park and everybody was being pushed further and further west and watching their apartments turn into like hideous modern monstrosity mm-hmm. condos.
1: Absolutely. I think you're totally right on that Starbucks thing. i I know that they probably have a strategy to take over.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they do, or at least, or at least they did then, you know, because I wonder, I mean, I also just think of Portland when I think about this. I even think about LA. You know what? Uh, They've been kind of running out of places to gentrify, Mm -hmm. you know, in Portland, all the people of color or, you know, lower income people have been pushed out of the city to the suburbs. Mm. It's like the inverse of what happened to cities in like the seventies, you know, like now only wealthy people live in the city and primarily white people. And I would suspect that Chicago has just based on what was happening when I lived there has also pushed everybody who's not white and upwardly mobile to the edges Mm -hmm. of the city. We know that's what's happening in LA. You know, it's, it, what, what will they gentrify next? Like malls? I
1: mean, well, it's, it'll go the, it'll start going the opposite way because now everyone's trying to live in their, you know, in the the desert or, you know,
0: That's true. That's true. So we're going to see an inverse again.
1: So like most countercultures, Hipsters were heavily enmeshed with the music culture and scene. So from the 90s music and art subcultures, it is no surprise that they were arguably birthed essentially from the emo kids and evolved from there. You know, white belts, floppy hair. I had a white belt. Did you have a white belt, Amanda? Oh,
0: forever I wore that white belt.
1: It was just dilapidated by the time. Yeah, it was like it was
0: no longer white. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly, the white belt was basically a signifier. I remember in that early time period of if you're kind of like a kind of cool sceny... It was. It was mm-hmm. before the word hipster even was a thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, totally. It was in that like very early outs proto hipster era. Yes, you know. Yeah. Yeah,
1: but you, but you knew that you you'd find some sort of kinship with someone if they were had the white belt. Um <laughs> so there were quite a few stages of developments that happened during this period of like the hipster development there was electro clash that was like kind of in that earlier part of the century which was fostering this 80s and 90s new wave disco there were the mods there was the gritty new york rock and roll kind of moto culture there was this like blue collar working class authenticity culture um i talked about last week, um, that like ye old everything with handlebar mustaches and plaid shirts.
0: Oh, that's my favorite. I'm just going to go ahead and say that.
1: Usually if you were a ye olde hipster, you were particularly smug. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that's a great way to describe it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like just really, <laughs> you just, your taste was so... Um finally tu- <laughs> finally tuned to what you thought was the most you know ele- elevated of tastes. Um I feel
0: like these ye olde hipsters were really prone to mansplaining, yes. like a lot more than other hipster men.
1: Oh, did you know some ye olds? I mean, that was like so popular yeah. in
0: Portland. You know, there were all these barber shops that were ye olde barber yes, shops where you like get that terrible haircut, and yeah, and they just uh, wax in your mustache, oh. not in the way that I wax mine. You know, oh. like it was just, uh, yeah. But, I mean, I didn't. Those kinds of guys had no interest in me, but they definitely were like bitchy to me Uh in passing you know what i mean like if if someone tried to set me up with one of those guys i
1: was like yeah, this is like (laughs) doomed, you know (laughs) we have nothing in common (laughs) we have
0: nothing i'm way too rock and roll for these yield time Mm -hmm. guys you know
1: i mean and they all everyone had their own music that centered around their culture like as everything kind of started growing out it was you know the yield what were they listening to What are you Like
0: Mumford and Sons or
1: something exactly, I exactly. like that. Exactly. Exactly. Things I hate, you know? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> the yields. Um, and, well, there was also, you know, kind of like the um, this the socioeconomic part of the hipsters as well, because there was the trust funders. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be on in any of these different kind of se- segments of the hipsters, but sometimes some of some of them just did not work you know Mm -hmm. and just had a ton of money and those were the trust runners and that was kind of like a really big wave of hipsters were these trust oh
0: i know trust me i dated all of them. oh
1: gosh (laughs) (laughs) there was like the art school educated ones or you know other you know liberal arts educated um you know in the middle class and there was kind of like the more lower class kids also who were really in it was that was kind of like that you know, lots of like thrift DIY. You know, they were kind of the most authentic. I would probably mm-hmm. say. I think the art kids were pretty authentic too. You know. Um, yeah, yeah. But once you got started getting to trust funders, you're, you know, you're like, oh, uh, <laughs> you can just buy, you can just buy your way into everything, and that's kind of that's kind of actually one of the things I'm going to get to, which is really interesting about how this culture was actually based on consumerism. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So why did it evolve? Okay, so well, mainstream culture, as we talked about in the past two episodes, was really something to behold. You know, we talked about the influence of celebrity style, ranch culture, reality TV. You know, hipsters could not stomach the early aughts and were alienated by mainstream culture and all of their icons. So they created their own world with its own references. hip. Ironic, irreverent, and kitschy. Oh, and most importantly, counter to all mainstream cultures at the time.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important to underscore.
1: Mm-hmm. Microeconomies flourished. And then, obviously, you know, after some time passing, of those, you know, uh, non conformist trends actually started to appeal to the masses, which I'll get to in a little bit. Um, and I feel like that's sometimes forgotten, though. You know, kale coffee, urban farming, localism, niche, everything, you know, but at this time, this kind of consumerism, shall I say pre-conscious consumerism was very individual to these communities. It was a very proud and loud revolt against consumer habits and trends. Um, Neil reminded me that during this time period, post nine 11, you know, Bush was kept kept pushing for you know buy American and you know consume 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 consume, and I think that that kind of got twisted a little bit, and you know hipsters just revolted against it. Um, mm-hmm. And hipsters were the new urban bohemians who consumed and produced in alternative and mm-hmm. often indie ways. So microcosms to cultivate trends in each locale, like adding a fixed gear shop or vintage store bars and coffee shop and health food stores, um, that the neighborhood would then support themselves. This love of kitsch was also a nod to nostalgia, as well as a curious look back into simpler times, subverting, quote unquote, low culture that had been considered tacky or cheap or trashy in this like high, this time period that considered itself or that itself actually was tacky and cheap and trashy. For far more gross reasons, like <laughs> ranch culture and all this mass produced, highly corporate garbagery that was just being pushed on our throats, post-industrial mass production conformity. Um, not that hipsters didn't embrace ranch culture, which they did. And Amanda is going to get into in a little bit. And I'm very excited to hear what she came up with. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was just being like, I don't like these consumer habits. I don't like these trends. We're going to make our own. Um, You know, hipsters are notorious consumers, not producers. While previous subcultures developed consumerist habits for more of a rebellious end, what most distinguished hipster culture as pro-consumerist is that the consumerism is the primary means of self-expression, for hipsters. So take, for example, Apple products. Consuming Apple was originally just a super hipster concept. Same, with, same at the time with like music and coffee or green juice. You know, what you consume often had a di- direct reflection during this time period of which tribe you belong to. There was a consumption or anti-consumption of DIY as well. Teaching yourself how to play the banjo, thrifting and fixing clothing, like Pretty in Pink, homemade art installations, etc. I remember there was this amazing DIY magazine, Amanda, that I texted you about yesterday because I was just, yeah, I, I I just I remember loving it. I bought it every single month. It was called Ready Made, and it was all about this burgeoning DIY culture with a focus on interiors and fashion. Did you read? ready-made?
0: Oh, I I loved it. I loved it. And I think, I'm glad you're talking about the DIY aspect of hipsterism because that was Mm -hmm. massive in Portland. Mm -hmm. Just massive. You know, there were brands that were launched out of the Pacific Northwest that started as these sort of like locally made brands. That's the origin of the whole like put a bird on Mm it joke. There were just so many stores around town that were strictly selling like upcycled or artisan made goods. And I think that like It reached a point where it kind of became a joke almost, but it started out a very pure, very like Mm -hmm. countercultural way.
1: And it clearly blew up because the demand was there. Like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like within that culture, people wanted to support local. That was really important was hipsters supporting hipsters, essentially, you know, and these neighborhoods were so successful because of that support. So hipsters didn't really generate new cultural forms, but instead retool old counterculture symbols and tropes. So in this New York Times article that has been referenced in so many of these think pieces that I've read, um, it's called What Was the Hipster? I think it was written in like 2010 or something. Uh, Mark Grief evaluates the hipster's creative expression. Obviously, it is exaggerating, and he even says that he's exaggerating. But he says, uh, and I quote, you know, one could say exaggeratingly only slightly that the hipster moment did not produce artists, but tattoo artists. Who gained an entire generation's arms, sternums, napes, ankles, (laughs) and lower backs as their canvas. It did not produce photographers, but snapshot and party photographers. Last night's Mm -hmm. party, Terry Richardson, the cobra snake. It did not produce painters, but graphic designers. It did not yield a great literature, but it made good use of fonts. And hipsterism did not make an avant-garde. It made communities of early adopters. Which is so poignant because Mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's kind of what happens at the end of where the hipsters went. And I'll get into it in a little bit. So they embraced being unique and nonconformist, which led to a need to seek out obscure things, irreverent things or funny, ironic things. That in itself was a sort of an art form itself. How to reinvent vintage clothing and furniture low-class paraphernalia, ignored neighborhoods in disrepair, local economies and slow food, indie makers, and notably indie music or music unheard of for over a decade. Anything that was in the mainstream that hadn't been incorporated in this increasingly expanding marketing machine was pretty much ripe for the picking. Um, So there's an article called hipster the end of western civilization from an <laughs> dark it's really i mean like i said there was there's a ton of negative dark um angsty articles out there this was kind of one of them where it is like it's okay anyway it's from ad busters article in the late aughts by douglas Adams.
0: speaking of hipsters okay ad busters was like the ultimate hipster magazine because it also costs like 12 dollars.
1: Oh, really? Yeah.
0: <laughs> but it had like only one article and mostly pictures.
1: Well, I mean, when, what you do find is um, hipster, it's like one of the worst insults is to call a hipster a hipster. Um, like hipsters yeah. will deny it. And so this person, because he knows so much about the intricities of the culture, clearly was a hipster. <laughs> <laughs> and And was just kind of revolting against, I mean, it did get, as it grew, it became kind of, Gross at times, too. So it makes sense that you'd be kind of like angsty and angry about it. But anyways, what he says is hipsterdom is the first counterculture to be born under the advertising industry's microscope, leaving it open to constant manipulation, but also forcing its participants to continually shift their interests and affiliations. Less a subculture, the hipster is a consumer group, using their capital to purchase empty authenticity and rebellion. But the moment a trend, band, sound, style, or feeling gains too much exposure, it is suddenly looked upon with disdain. Hipsters cannot afford to maintain any cultural loyalties or affiliations for fear that they will lose relevance. So, you know, there's, this was always kind of a trope, but, you know, walk by... Any William this is me talking now not not him um <laughs> walk by any williamsburg or portland street corner and you will hear you probably they never heard of it or <laughs> i liked blank before it was cool oh my gosh yes 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 i like the the the, the smugness that dripped uh, off of conversation i mean
0: listen <laughs> i I'm not ashamed to admit that I was and still remain a hipster, whatever yeah. the 2021 version of that is. And I would go out on dates with guys who would talk to me like that. Oh. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was
1: mansplaining. was like yes,
0: bans to me, and I'm like, listen, you oh. are barking up the wrong tree. I know all <laughs> the I'm probably way cooler than you. So always. <laughs> <laughs> I know,
1: like you are underestimating underestim- my coolness. Yeah, but I'm so cool that I'm not going to say anything because <laughs> yeah. that's a of my coolness. And judge you? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I never talk to you again. And then then tell all of my friends. Yes, exactly. Um, so you know, like I said, so th- this negativity around the hipster culture was super super intense. Um, and as I was reading these think pieces. Um, from that time period, it was kind of like reading the same tone of the millennials killing everything. Oh, I'm sure.
0: I feel like the the millennial killing thing is just uh, it's so tired. It's been done by every generation. You
1: yeah, it's know? like actually the hipsters kind of killed it, and then went to the millennials, and you know, yeah, we all <laughs>
0: killed it. Apparently, I'm we sure, all I'm sure it. if we could like get in a time machine and go back to like 1990, it was like the Gen Xers were killing everything. Yes.
1: Okay. So uh, beyond spending habits, the embracement of anti-corporatism followed into professional and employment status. Hipsters were artists, visual and graphic, who preferred to work in non-corporate establishments. They were tech savvy and forward thinking, working in the digital e-com and new media industries that were all burgeoning. Um, The service economy was getting huge and hipsters worked at local establishments like coffee shops, bars, record stores, or as bike couriers, to not conform to society's general demands and commitments for corporate attire and culture and the nine-to-five grind. Um, Surely there was a better way to live that aligned more with their philosophies. This helps to support the microcosms within each flourishing neighborhood even more. Hipsters like to visit other hipster, hipster neighborhoods too. You know, I remember... And I still do it. Every time I go to a different city, I immediately look for the hip neighborhood, you know, because you're always oh, looking for your community. Totally, Dustin will go on Yelp
0: and search hipster,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, see how too. much
0: people are complaining about hipsters. Which is funny because it's like 2021; do hipsters yeah. even exist anymore? And then we'll go to that place because it's pretty yes. be good.
1: <laughs> yes, I, th- I, I, that's why I, I do the same thing too. It's like when I'm traveling, I'll be like, okay, what's the hipster neighborhood? Because I know that that neighborhood is going to have more things that I enjoy. Mm-hmm, which is like mm-hmm. you know you know the slow food movement grew out of there great coffee shops great you know music venues all those things are going to be in those neighborhoods and I totally. uh, might as well just search hipster yes 100 um, <laughs> percent and so there was you know always there it was like always a cross offer and there was a kinship and an understanding that was always cultivated um and you know There was a lot of these DIY entrepreneurs that kind of came out of this time period, like we kind of talked about, not just DIY making things, but actually, you know, starting, you know, restaurants and coffee shops and things like that came a lot came out of these, these like, very entrepreneurial hipsters so they demanded authenticity after years of mass and corporate culture being forced down their throats authentic everything was at its core sometimes it was seen as mainstream trends but you know kind of in this like make it authentic so take for example the trucker hat but not von dutch like the real vintage sourced ones that was something that was like it crossed over from mainstream and then you know it hit really hard in the hipster but you wouldn't wear the von dutch one um or coffee you know starbucks was corporate so make it artisanal from mm-hmm. independent coffee shops and really good because starbucks coffee is gross and you know like there's always a better way and there's a better way to be conscious and can consume a better product and 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 encourage you know other economic factors as well and you know fair trade and all of those things um tattoos that we talked about last in our last episode, but make it authentic or ironic, you know, which kind of got lost for this last decade. Um, Authenticity kind of moved into disruption in the glamour of branding. But now, you know, Gen Z kids disillusioned with the millennial movements are demanding this authenticity and nostalgia and irreverence all over again, but kind of in a more PC way. I think it's interesting to note that you know they they we embrace technology in a way unlike most other groups um, you know every single article from that time period mentions this as an identifier of hipsters particularly apple products in the aughts you know hipsters were synonymous with being obsessed with apple and technology which is now just so mainstream you kind of forget where it started and the negativity surrounding it and, or maybe it was jealousy i don't know <laughs> <laughs> but it was like Apple iPods.
0: What a blast from the past! Yeah,
1: um, those were synonymous with being a hipster. Essentially, you know, um, mm-hmm. they also made good use of new media blogs. I remember reading Free Williamsburg, this blog that was just like a mainstay of culture and and music and, and exploration and discovery, uh, and it was based on obviously it was based in Williamsburg and it was about the Williamsburg scene. And when I lived in Wisconsin, I would read it and learn all about all these movements and things I was missing out on um, and felt some sort of connection. So obviously, when I moved to New York, I eventually, you know, moved to Williamsburg because that was kind of my my tribe, um, you know. And out of hipsters, we got a lot of, you know, fashions, fashion things like knits and tees, which Amanda's going to get into the skinny jeans um, Mm-hmm. scarves as amanda i don't know if you're going to talk about this but i think we have to talk about it at some point were so huge
0: we'll do that in another episode because okay. i could go off on of scarves
1: it's <laughs> hilarious and you know when i worked at oak we sold massive amounts of scarves yeah. especially the that um pakistani scarf oh uh,
0: yes yes we'll do we'll do scarves it's a whole segment for sure
1: yeah it's a whole Amanda can do the scarves cuz that was that was her department <laughs> um vintage clothing obviously was also really popular beards and highly groomed mustaches Flannels. Mm-hmm. birds or owls
0: yeah it's just so random the things that we picked
1: you know what i mean <laughs> it was like a mixture of like kitsch and rock yeah. and 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 anti-consumerism. It was just a bunch of different interesting things. Um, I Hipper Dangerous or Hipper Homeless was this quote-unquote game that we played during this time, which, you know, obviously is not PC at all. Um, but I do remember seeing people on the street and thinking their style was really cool until suddenly they kind of would stop and start dig th- digging through the, the garbage can. And I would realize that they weren't hipsters. There was, like, there was a homeless person. And I would... It just feels so terrible, you know. It's like like we appropriated homeless, like yeah, <laughs> you know, like the homeless look as like a cool look, which is really you know fucked up. Fucked up. The level
0: of privilege that hipsters had, mm-hmm. I cannot underscore enough too, because we are yes. primarily Thank talking you. about a subculture of white people that was yes, primarily that, and had no sense. Like there was no self awareness that it was like yep. we should have white trash parties. We should dress homeless. We should mm-hmm. form rap groups. Do you know what I mean? Like it was like yes. we're going to appro- appropriate everybody's culture, and mm-hmm. I just, but just ironically, like we're not. Our hearts mm-hmm. aren't in it. We're just doing it for irony, and that is just so privileged. I just so gross. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we didn't recognize it. No, no. And there was no accountability. Um, social media was also basically Friendster. You know, it was just a, it was a very bizarre time. And, you know, and of course you look back and you're just really re- regretful of some, some things. Um, And I know that you're gonna talk about Vice in a little bit and like, and like that, <laughs> that is just like the kingpin of this oh, whole thing.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. As I mentioned, you know, the origins come from the bohemian roots with an emphasis on nonconformity and authenticity, shooing anything mainstream or chain unless it was ironic. And I mentioned irony last week as a rather significant driver of trends, and Amanda just brought it up, which was even more amplified by the hipster movement. But as the irony of hipster culture becoming mainstream culture, the irony, I think, is sort of lost.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Definitely. I mean, that's a whole... That's a whole thing right there, you know?
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I am just like, that's kind of ironic, you know, uh, especially the irony of just like the, just all the negativity also around, around, you know, hipsters. Anyway, So the original hipsters were tastemakers. They were on the forefront of so many not extremely mainstream trends. I mean, this begs to ask, obviously, are hipsters still around? I mean, yes, there are trendsetters and style forward people, but a lot of the ideas that were considered counterculture are now mainstream. Mm -hmm. In essence, the hipster culture is, for the most part, mainstream. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is. It is. So fascinating to think about. You know, uh, and I would guess ultimately the internet and social media expansion effectively collapsed the hipster movement, but also amplified it to the point of being mainstream. You know, um, so to the point that the hipster "quote unquote" taste and sensibilities, which were often supported and adapted by the graphic design circles and tastemakers who embrace those typeface trends that were really big during this time period you know they created that minimal and blanding aesthetic that is now so mainstream is now subverted into being not very cool you know DTC brands really popularized this sort of aesthetic but it was the hipsters that originally developed the brands first like Warby Parker back in 2010 Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: which makes the case for hipsters being the original disruptors and original thinkers in the new millennia Setting a mindset for the audience to basically become this disruptor utopia of people embracing um, hipster culture and aesthetics. Um, You know, in his 2015 book, The Flat White Economy, McWilliams sees this phenomenon of the young hip entrepreneur as the central element of the new world economy. So, the term flat white economy. Um, is named after the increasingly popular coffee drink, which has been adopted by hipsters all over the globe, Um, how the digital economy is transforming London and other cities of the future. McWilliams suggests that hipsters and their ecosystem represents the future of British prosperity. They tend to be greener and more ethical and work in the industries beginning to drive our economy, such as e-commerce and marketing. Where these creative internet driven businesses start to gather Independent retailers and restaurants spring up around them, kind of like what I was talking about, you know, um, earlier. So particularly coffee shops, this forms a kind of symbiotic relationship where independent businesses thrive and compete with one another, boosting the local economy. A good example of this is on Old Street in East London, where cheaper rental spaces attracted Internet based startups and subsequently more bars, coffee shops, and restaurants. So millennial spending habits also play a part. Because of the high cost of living, millennials are less likely to save money. Instead, they spend disposable income on experiences such as brunch. This mixture of creatives in close proximity and more lifestyle spending results in a kind of renaissance effect where businesses, as well as consumers, encourage and influence each other to be excellent and innovative. This is usually good for the economy and we're starting to see the effect take place in cities across the UK and across, um, obviously, America, literally everywhere. I mean, it has its drawbacks. You know, flat like economies can contribute to problems such as gentrification, as we talked about. As middle class workers move into cheaper areas, they may price out locals as property values go up. So I I don't know if you have anything to say (laughs) to add to that.
0: I mean, I think it, It is true. You know, when I think about a lot of the biggest brands and, I mean, and this is not just, we're not just speaking of clothing here either, that began to emerge around 2010 and really came out of the recession on top. It was very hipster driven. For example, the Ace Hotel, right? Oh my God. What a
1: good example.
0: Right. And there's trading on that. And I'll say you go to the Ace Hotel in New York, and uh, I've had to spend too much time there. Oh my god, you uh, have! I remember. It feels so mm-hmm. dated, so dated. But you know, they have they have evolved over time. Like if you look at like their new location in Kyoto, it's stunning and it it reflects the times that we're in right now. But that's a company that came up out of that era, and most definitely has its roots in hipsterism almost to a mm-hmm. fault at this point, you know. I think it's also really interesting that when we look at a lot of the brands that came out of the hipsters, like, you know, Warby yes. Parker, The Ace Hotel, um, I you know, RIP opening ceremony even. They all tend to have a very premium price point attached to yes. them because even in 2021 when we You know, we don't know what happened to the hipsters. Is there a new hipster? What's replaced them? I think it's probably the cottage core kids. I have no idea. But people look at hipsterism as a premium product. It's worth paying more for. So it's like now that the backlash has kind of disappeared, hipsterism is more valuable than ever. It's like the hipster tax.
1: It's like you will pay more for the, the clout.
0: I think so too. I think so too. Stumptown coffee. That's another one, you know, middle America sees and recognizes these brands and knows that they're hipster at their core. They know that word. They know that, I don't know, that aesthetic and that's a premium product, yeah. you know,
1: there's more value in the hipster aesthetic. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the hip, the cool. I mean, also, you know, the, the, with the Instagrammable, like mm-hmm. if you can Instagram your mm-hmm. moment, like if you can Instagram this, you know, $15 ice cream cone, it's worth the price.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's tons of businesses, well, maybe not right now today, but in 2019, back in the old times, that uh, they stayed in business solely because they were Instagrammable. It wasn't yes. even necessarily the product was that great, especially like when we talk about foods and beverages, you know? So I do think hipsterism is like, I don't know, it's like a high value aesthetic now.
1: Uh, Yeah. People pay good money to have their brand hipstified.
0: I mean, it's something that Dustin and I talk about a lot and it goes back to kind of like what you said earlier, how, you know, the hipsters, they didn't produce a lot of painters. I mean, I barely knew any actual artists. In the arts, and those that I did know were horribly untalented. Hopefully, none of them <laughs> were listening to this, but they were doing terrible art. Mm-hmm. But I know tons of amazing, you know, graphic designers. So good. And, and like copywriters mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And all of those people now. They're steering culture and have Mm -hmm. been for the last decade. They're the ones who are picking cool songs for car commercials. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are making wacky KFC products. You see their influence in everything that we buy or like is we're exposed to, I guess, in Mm -hmm. terms of like marketing and advertising. And I think it's like they've taken their own aesthetic
1: and they made it this mainstream thing Mm -hmm. now. And they commercialize their their creativity like instead of having instead of instead of being an an artist you could make a like make a lot of money being a graphic designer
0: well there was just like a lot less concern about selling out with our generation yeah it was just like yeah you got to make a living okay you know (laughs) Yeah.
1: So by the end of the aughts, the word hipster and culture around it was ravaged and really devolved into something kind of grotesque. uh An aesthetically led self obsession with an alignment with party culture and gross misconduct led to the word hipster becoming sort of actually like a really offensive slur. Um, Mm-hmm. As the original hipster was watered down and associated with just lots of different subsects of people and partiers and like actually the younger generation, you know, any, mm-hmm. if any kid was technically a hipster because, you know, kids just are moving towards trends and a lot of them started just, you know, em- embracing this hipster culture. So I think that the youth were starting to all just be called hipsters. Like if you shopped at Urban Outfitters, I've even read if you shopped at, um American Eagle and I was like what stop that's not stop so no. i think the watering i know i'm like that's not <laughs> a hipster but okay okay we know whoever's reading this article and clearly doesn't know what they're talking about um but if that person thinks that if someone shops at American Eagle is a hipster that means anyone wearing jeans is- or is like you know? yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I feel like the just everyone became a hipster, and anyone in in the youth that liked to party or something was considered a star hipster or something. Um, so there was this huge kind of loathing towards this group. Um do you remember that time period when people were really just like hating hipsters? and it was just like they were it was like they were the scum of the earth. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, people would heckle me from cars. I oh. think that's so ironic because, like, probably the person who was yelling that out of the car window at me was wearing fucking skinny jeans,
1: you know? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You're like, you, the kale salad that you enjoy and that coffee that you're drinking. Yeah. Thank you. You're us. welcome.
0: Thank us because kale <gasps> used to be hard yeah. to find. Okay.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, mockery is the greatest form of flattery. I mean, Portlandia. Mm hmm. Um, took the urban hipster and made a whole show about it. <laughs> but it was like a group of hipsters making a show about yeah. hipsters, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, you know, they they made fun of this culture going so far as having a hipster olympics in Berlin in 2012. Do you remember reading about this cuz I do? No. I highly encourage that you just take a peek at it. There's like mustache competitions. And a horned rim glasses throwing competition. Oh my competition. god! How did
0: we forget the glasses.
1: Yes, a con- <laughs> there's the record spinning contest. Oh my right. the Turntables and records. Yes, um, there's a canvas bag jumping event. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was a bunch of things. It only happened once, but it actually looks hilarious. There's an amazing op-ed in the New York Times that claims that lesbians were the original hipsters. So Krista Burton argues. Lesbians were working on communal organic farms and freaking out about pesticides decades before the rest of the country. Who do you think made food co ops cool? <laughs> lesbians did, my child. <laughs> we lesbians have been making our own pickles and brewing gross health teas forever. Now, quick, describe society's idea of a quote unquote typ- typical hipster for me. Did pla- plaid flannel come to mind? Work boots? Weirdly cut or especially shaggy hair? Maybe a bike? How odd. You just described the cartoon stereotype (laughs) of a a lesbian. (laughs) Now you straight people carry your own reusable bags back to your Prius after comparing artisanal brands of Sriracha Mayo This is super gay. You voted for Hillary Clinton. You freak out if someone throws plastic in your compost bin and you're considering a week without eating meat. Would it be so bad? You're all lesbians now, America. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened after the aughts hipsters? Well, millennials. Um, There are also some other subjects that have been identified, like the yuckies which are actually young urban creatives. And there's some really amazing articles about the yuckies out there. And it is, it kind of is like that flat white economy, mm-hmm. like all those people ingrained in that mm-hmm. there's the cute people that love kind of nostalgic, nostalgic, cute things, mm-hmm. um, health goth. There's lumber sexuals. There was this trend in the, in the mid oddies called sea punks that I kind of missed and are really kind of amazing. Yeah.
0: And
1: kind of what you had mentioned is cottage core. I mean, there's a lot of different things that are happening. I, I think the things that are really going to move the needle though, I don't know if cottage core will move the needle. I kind of think it might, it's just, it's just like a a really interesting trend, mm-hmm. um, you know, but I do think that the Gen Z generation as just a generation themselves will likely have a massive impact on consumer behavior, the same way that millennials did. And they already are with the demand for maximalism, the demand for um, accountability, the demand for um, sustainable lifestyle things, you know, all that stuff is going to keep building because now Gen Z has the buying power to support it. Well,
0: You can't talk about hipsters without talking about three things that were very closely linked. Vice Uh Magazine, (sighs) Terry Richardson,
1: Uh
0: and American Apparel.
1: Uh
0: Originally, I wasn't going to do all three of these in this episode, but I was just like, I can't not. They're so, just one segues into another.
1: Intertwined. And they did.
0: They crossbred. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh, And all three of these things seem super dated in 2021, super ill-advised, and, well, super gross. (laughs) So what a great series of things to discuss. I mean, I got to talk about going on dates to strip clubs in the last episode. Mm -hmm. So now I'm going to talk about even grosser things. (laughs) And I'm excited to break it all down because I think we're going to start to see that hipsters weren't exempt from that shitty sexist ranch culture of this mainstream like ranch was universal mm-hmm. baby it's everywhere and i was. would argue that perhaps you'd be the judge the hipster version of raunch was actually worse like more yeah. traumatizing let's say that yes right because it's like the, yes. the mainstream ranch. it was just kind of like bad taste or something right but this is like insidious because mm-hmm as Kim was talking about, there was this expectation that I don't know, like hipsters had more integrity, that they were more authentic, right? And that they rejected mainstream culture. So if you were part of the hipster demographic, you had no choice to embrace these things and be okay Mm -hmm. with some pretty fucked up shit. That's how I would summarize it, right? Yeah. Like you had to look the other way, which like I said, there was a lot of Privilege and bad decision making happening anyway. But
1: well, and everyone, there was like all these articles that time period where it was all about like sex cells and people were just jumping on board and it did sell. (laughs) It worked. It did sell.
0: It did sell. Yeah. Pharmaceutical
1: companies were starting to use it. You know, it was like really gross. It was really gross. So Mm -hmm. it's
0: hard to know where to start, but I guess we'll start with vice. For Mm -hmm. more than two decades, which gosh, that is like so long. This iconic magazine was like the print version of hipsterism in a glossy print, like paper form that was available for free at many of like the coolest boutiques, like skate stores, record shops, you name it across the world, including all of the American apparel locations. And And it was free too. It was free. Yeah. And that Mm -hmm. That was a big deal because it felt very premium.
1: It did. It was a thick book Mm -hmm. with amazing content that came out every month and you were excited to get it. You go to the American Apparel to get it. To get it. And it was like
0: way cooler than any other magazine out there. Just like nothing came even close to this. And virtually every issue published during the odds contained a full page ad on the back cover, if not more ads inside uh, from American apparel
1: of course of
0: course right if vice magazine and American apparel were a Venn diagram <laughs> there would be some very serious heavy overlapping and I think that section where they meet might be called cocaine but I'm not sure <laughs> yeah there's a, I, it
1: could be it could be a lot of things yeah it could that, be, a lot. Could things. be in of them, there
0: none of them are that good mm-hmm. um, they're all they're all they all have side effects if you will a lot of the information I'm going to share here comes from a New York Magazine article called A Company Built on Bluff. And you're going to see that this is like the perfect title for the story of Vice Magazine. Mm-hmm. And this article is a super valuable resource. We'll link it in the show notes because I found it very difficult to find good info on the origins of Vice and kind of like mm. what happened there. It's just like this is the only person who really, really wrote about it. And I will tell you, because I don't have all day to talk about this, I'm going to give you the summary version of it. But this article is definitely a good read. You're going to learn so much more stuff. So Vice was founded in 1994 when Saroosh Alvi, Galvin McGinnis, and Shane Smith used money from a Canadian government welfare program to start a magazine in Montreal. That, that magazine is still published in a paper edition, although I haven't seen one in a while. It's very ironic in an era where magazines are definitely not thriving anymore, and they're even, like, you know, shutting down and shifting to online only. And I know, as of now, Vice has many other ways in which they reach people, That it's interesting to me that the magazine still exists. Uh, I'll tell you, the content specifically from the aughts has not held up. For example... The Vice Guide to Shagging Muslims really feels offensive right now, right? Oh my gosh. And now was just, I mean, there was just so much of it. But the depravity. Oh. Yeah, it was just so gross. But nonetheless, for the aughts and maybe the early aughties, it offered an outlet for people who found the mainstream culture and mm-hmm. all of its like you know, juicy tracksuits and Ed Hardy hats very, very lame. You know, as (laughs) Kim and I were talking, once again, I'm like, wow, there were like really two primary cultures, at Mm -hmm. least in the United States in the early aughts. Not to say that there weren't many other subcultures and groups of people existing, but these were the two that seemed to be driving the things that we bought, the things that we saw on TV, that kind of thing. It was that like mainstream culture that we've been talking about. And then this hipster culture. Now, As I mentioned, there were three founders of Vice. There was Soroush Alvi, who was sort of like the captain of the ship. He kept things going. There was Gavin McInnes, who was Mm -hmm. responsible for the editorial voice. And that's really important to keep in mind for something I'm going to tell you later. So please put a pin in that. He created the voice, the tone, the vibe, if you will, of Vice, which was very ironic to a point where sometimes you would be like, is this ironic or is this offensive? I can't Mm -hmm. tell. Shane Smith, who I would say now, I was talking about this with Dustin earlier, has really become the face that most people associate with Vice. He actually handled ad sales, and he told everyone that they were going to get rich off of this magazine. And they kind of laughed, but ultimately, he was right. Uh, McGinnis called him a bullshitter Shane. And perhaps I would say he did earn that title when he pulled off all kinds of schemes like hmm. Sending a few copies of the magazine to a record store in Miami and then a few more to a skate shop in L.A. And then telling advertisers that they were distributed across North America. An ex-girlfriend of his, uh, Jessica Lowe, said Shane would talk all the time about how stupid people were for giving them money. In 1998, Smith told a reporter that a wealthy media mogul in Montreal named Richard Svalwinski had invested in Vice. That was actually not true at all, but somehow Svalwinski heard this and was like, okay, well, you know, let's see what these guys have to say. He scheduled a meeting and he ended up investing. So the guys took that money and in 1999, they moved to New York to work out of an office paid for, you know, by Svalwinski. When a Canadian reporter came by to do a profile, the company paid a friend to pretend he was an MTV (laughs) executive. Interested in a vice branded show. And this is just like how they operated all the time. Mm -hmm. Of course, then the dot com bubble burst and all of their money evaporated. But this was like the magical hipster era where a magazine could solicit work just by paying with booze and access to super cool parties. So they were able to grow and thrive sort of just by like, oh, I don't know, not paying for any of their content.
1: Wow. But then still
0: selling ads. Think of all the edgy content of that time. We had party photos in there, really interesting fashion spreads, the legendary do's and don'ts, which was their segment. And there was at least one, if not two books made of the do's and don'ts Mm -hmm. that we sold at Urban Outfitters. And we sold a lot of them. There was actually some real news in there too, like a lot of coverage of the failing global
1: drug Mm -hmm. war. The fight They did some real hard they pain they articles. You we were kind of shocked that, that 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 they could, you know, completely insult and degrade a woman in the do's and don'ts, and then turn around and do these insane articles about like 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 society pieces. You're just like, Ooh.
0: Their articles were always so good, and I felt like it was like they came from a different mm-hmm. magazine. Like they were covering AIDS long after the rest of the the sort of like industry had forgotten about it, and. I appreciated mm-hmm. that. Like they went hard on the journalism. Like I read Vice for the mm-hmm. articles, you know, in the middle of the decade, Vice did two really smart things. First, they started their own ad agency called Virtue, which sort of, you know, allowed them to sell people more ads. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they became one of the first digital media outlets to get into online video with VBS.tv. I don't know if you remember this, but it was a digitally, a digital video site funded with a $2 million investment from Vice.
1: Weird. No.
0: And I will tell you, this is just the beginning of Vice taking some weird money. Mm-hmm. They also realized though, that they maybe needed to tone down their edginess because like I was saying, sometimes you just were like, I I can't get a read on what's happening right now. Like Is this ironic? Is this offensive? Like, where's that line? You know, one of my friends gave me some really good advice a long time ago. It was like, if you even think for a moment that it might be offensive, it probably is. And Vice wasn't following that policy at all. Um, An early episode of Vice's MTV show, which ran for just one season, cost the program dozens of sponsors after airing a segment about sex dolls, which seems so tame to be now. And I remember this episode, it was pretty funny, but I mean, that was the thing. Like it was over the top, you know, in 2008, Alvy and Smith bought out McGinnis, Gavin McGinnis, who's like, uh, I don't know, humor was becoming a liability, even though, you know, he, it had initially sort of defined the voice of vice. Like that's what he was Responsible for.
1: I mean, I used to see him at every, not every, I'd see him at so many parties in Williamsburg. I mean, that guy partied harder than (laughs) anyone.
0: (laughs) Oh, no doubt. No doubt. No doubt. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to take a moment to talk about Gavin McInnes. So he left Vice and the vibe I got from some other things I read is that it was not a Mm -hmm. pleasant Separation. Like he was very bitter. And so he went on to write a series of books like Kim's favorite book, How to Piss in Public. I oh how did you
1: know? <laughs> I know,
0: I know. And then that gradually shifted into writing articles for right wing websites like Tacky's Magazine and V Dare. Mm. And McGinnis would tell you without a hint of shame he is Islamophobic, he is anti Semitic, he is transphobic, he is homophobic. He's racist and, of course, he's sexist. He told the New York Times, "quote I'm an Archie Bunker sexist. I don't like Gloria Steinem, but I take a bullet for Edith. I like don't even know what to make of that. I mean, this guy, he just sucks. And I'm going to tell you, you learn the more you learn about Gavin McInnes, you look back at old issues of Vice, and you're like, that's fucking garbage. Okay, that wasn't ironic at all." That was just being like a hateful person.
1: But we're just we're consuming it as ironic, but in reality, mm-hmm. it's authentic, which is yeah, hilarious.
0: Like, he would post a picture of a guy in do's and don'ts because I think he was the one who wrote do's and don'ts, he and it'd be yeah. like looking at this guy's making me an anti-Semite. And you'd be like, mm-hmm. uh, that's, is this funny? I, I don't know. I feel weird. So now that I hear this, I'm like, oh yeah, like he wasn't being ironic. We mm-hmm. just assumed it Hipsterism was so entrenched in irony that that's what was happening. In 2016, he launched The Proud Boys, a neo-fascist, men's rights, and male-only organization classified as a general hate organization. (laughs) General hate?
1: Just generally hateful of everything. Oh, my God. Yes.
0: And the, the Southern Poverty Law Center declared that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Women and trans men are not invited to join the Proud Boys. Sorry, Kim.
1: Okay. Okay. Good to know.
0: (laughs) This group is incredibly sexist, transphobic, racist, and homophobic, just like McGinnis himself. And the initiation process is, well, predictably stupid. Uh, Step one Mm -hmm. is a loyalty oath along the lines of I'm a proud Western chauvinist. I refuse to apologize for creating the modern world. Oh, Deep, really deep. Oh. The next step, this is when you know that this is a really serious organization. The next step is getting punched until you can recite specific pop culture trivia. Like they might be say, list the names of five breakfast cereals. We'll keep punching you until you say them. Once you've passed that challenge, Which, you know, apparently getting punched in the face makes it really hard to speak. So just something to think about. Next, you must get a tattoo and agree not to masturbate anymore. Like this non-masturbation agreement is at the core of the Proud Boys. And I feel like I am not like an expert in this area. I really try to avoid it because I get too freaked out. But I... Would think then that the Proud Boys and like incels also have their own Venn diagram with a lot of overlap too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the last step, you, you know, you got that tattoo, you got punched in the face, you signed the no masturbation agreement.
1: You're st- I mean, this, that actually super, super aligns with original Vice. It sounds like, it sounds like a, a cult that Vice would have started in the aught.
0: It does. It does. And the last step is getting into a major fight, quote, for the cause, which is what makes the Proud Boys even more disturbing. I mean, they were definitely part of, you know, the insurrection of the Capitol. They've been involved in Portland alone in so many insane confrontations with people who are showing up to, you know, stand for Black Lives Matter. They come in there and they engage in a lot of violence and fighting. The Daily Beast reported in February 2018 that the Proud Boys have amended their rules to ban uh, cargo shorts and opioids and meth, but cocaine is okay.
1: Cargo shorts?
0: Yeah, I I have no idea. I have no idea. But like I said, now that we know about McGinnis, which is that he is a very hateful, bigoted person, I can't look back at old issues issues of vice without seeing how fucked up they were. Super sexist, classist, anti-Semitic and homophobic. And, while the general feeling was that all of this was supposed to be ironic, I just don't know anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think I could read another an old issue of it. It didn't seem quite right to me back then, and to be honest, it just felt wrong. And now, I know that it was, and it wasn't just me being hypersensitive.
1: Wait, going back to these cargo shorts, okay. I can only. I just, I'm just trying to imagine what happened with a pair of cargo shorts to the point that they had to make a rule that you can't wear cargo
0: shorts. If you know, please call the hotline. It's really, really important. I'll do some more things. <laughs> I thought that was like so random too.
1: Like I can I understand the drugs, obviously, but the cargo shorts, it's like, yeah, okay, it's- was it because it was like attracting like a jersey short cargo short lover? Was it because people were were carrying their their opioids in their cargo shorts. Like, what was the cargo? <laughs> I
0: shirt? have no idea. I'm very intrigued, and we have yeah. to find out. Hilarious. Uh, Vice carries on today without McGuinness. and mm. now it's like a mega company with basically a media empire. You know, there's a show on HBO. Mm. They have massive investment from Rupert Murdoch. Yes, that's the guy who's the creator of Fox News. I feel like that, to me, casts another pall over vice for me. I, I don't know about you, Kim.
1: Oh, I mean,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it has been called out for all kinds of nefarious behavior over the years, including massively underpaying and abusing mm-hmm. its staff, which makes sense based on its history of just like not paying people, yeah. right? And I, that or tracks, that totally, yeah, tracks. It totally tracks. It totally tracks. And I do remember that one of the first things they had to do when they moved to their New York office and with all that investment money is they had to hire an HR person because they were harassing the employees so much. Like McGinnis was using the F-A-G word to employees all the time. Didn't want gay people working there at all. Like just saying crazy shit. I mean, this place, it like has really ugly roots that are still there. They've also come under fire in the past year for creating a toxic and abusive environment for its female employees, which of course also all tracks because it's practically written into the DNA
1: of that brand. Not, not shocked. So now I guess I'm
0: just like, I'm canceling Vice. I'm canceling Vice. You know what I mean?
1: mean, And it must've been so horrific working with him there, knowing now that that irony wasn't real and that he is actually just a kind of a despicable person.
0: I hope that people don't forget this stuff because I think what makes Vice hard to sort of cancel is that they still do some amazing journalism. Mm -hmm. And I read Vice articles all the time and find them really useful. So it's hard to just say, get out Mm -hmm. of here. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. You can rely on Vice to give some really awesome reporting in journalism. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Their roots have some. Yeah. Yeah. Some sad moments. Well,
0: Vice is a great segue to mentioning Terry Richardson. aka hmm. okay, Uncle Terry. Uncle Terry. Which gives Terry. Chills and makes me. Oh, him. it he is. He was practically the staff photographer for Vice, or at least it seemed that way. And. Terry Richard was, like, the hipster photographer of the aughts. Wouldn't you agree? Like, the yep. guy, right?
1: The guy. And you, he, he like, oozed creepiness. hmm But
0: that was in. Yeah. We thought it was ironic creepy, right? Mm-hmm. It Seems like a lot of the bad things that happened in the aughts with, it, like, this, like, hipstery, raunch, harassing, like, abusive culture was under the guise of irony right yes turns out yeah none of it was ironic it was all fucking real right
1: if like if it has a porn star mustache and looks like a porn star mustache
0: it is a yeah totally <laughs> and like uh so even terry richardson's like Our origin story was pretty hipstery. And I took this off from Wikipedia because it's also hard to find good information about him. So his mother reportedly gave him his first snapshot camera in 1982, which he used to document his life and the punk rock scene in Ojai. That's where he grew up. He originally actually wanted to be a punk rock musician rather than a photographer, and he played bass guitar in the punk rock band The Invisible Government for four years. He also played bass for a variety of other punk bands in Southern California, including Signal Street Alcoholics, Doggy Style, Baby Fist, and (laughs) Middle Finger. Baby Fist. (laughs) I I think I remember Baby Fist. In 1992, Richardson quit music and moved to the East Village neighborhood of New York City, where he began photographing young people partying and other nightlife. I mean, he was like a party Mm -hmm. photographer, you know. His first published fashion photos appeared in Vibe in 1994. And then these were just so well received that he shot an advertising campaign for fashion designer Catherine Hammett's spring 1995 collection. The campaign was noted, get ready for some cringing, for images of young women wearing short skirts with their pubic hair showing. Oh, wow. Which, oh, oh. I know, oh. just unnecessary. I think we're starting to see the hipster version of Roch culture starting to develop here, right? We saw yeah. some, a little bit of it in Vice. We're seeing it pick up mm-hmm. here. And so I'm just going to keep underscoring that this was not just a part of the mainstream culture. It was Mm -hmm. such a part of hipsters too. Richardson's work has been in just about every magazine, Harper's Bazaar, Rolling Stone, Vogue, you name it. And he's worked with tons of major designers, including YSL, Marc Jacobs, Tom Ford. And he's also worked on music videos for all kinds of people, including Lady Gaga and Miley Cyrus. I mean, he's like where he was, I guess I would say, Was like the A list photographer of the odds. And his work is known for being very sexy in a creepy way. We thought it was ironic, right? Lots of full frontal nudity, simulated or real sex acts, and just like a weird 70s porn vibe. I mean, very much the hipster definition of ranch culture. Yes. He himself described his style as, quote, Trying to capture those unpremeditated moments when people's sexualities come up to the surface, which feels so gross to me in a post yeah. to Me Too era, right? It's
1: disgusting, and especially since people were real, like a lot of these models were so young, so
0: young. I think that's like, really important to mention too. Yeah. So this is probably a great time to say that since 2001, Richardson has been accused repeatedly of using his influence in the fashion industry. Because like I said, he was like the photographer to sexually assault or exploit models during photo shoots, Mm -hmm. including coercing them to engage in sex acts with him. And what began as sort of like a whisper campaign that you would hear here and there picked up steam in 2013 when a petition was launched on change.org urging brands to stop working with Richardson. Mm -hmm. It documented many of the allegations against him to that, to that point. And it linked to numerous examples of hardcore pornography that had arisen from his fashion shoots, meaning that he had shot this himself, Mm -hmm. that he had tried to remove from the internet in the wake of this Mm -hmm. controversy. He was doing some like really bad stuff. By 2017, many brands and magazines refused to work with him. And as of 2018, he's been under investigation by the world famous New York City SVU Special Victims Unit mm-hmm. for several allegations of sexual assault.
1: Wow.
0: Now, Terry Richardson had the iconic hipster look mm-hmm. creepy molester aviator glasses. That porn mustache, mm-hmm. mustache brown, thick sideburns, and a signature flannel shirt. I mean, he looked like a creep, and we thought it was ironic. It turns out he was just a creep. He's just a creep, right? <laughs> uh,
1: actually, wait. Before you go on mm-hmm. with the party photography, I feel like it's so interesting to mention that 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 culture and that. Need to consume party pictures and what oh. you wore out and had photographed by party photographers was so incredibly important to trends and culture. Um, because we didn't have you know social media really, you know, and mm-hmm. and it, you know, you would go to the vice or go online to the, the party, um, you know, what last night's party or whatever and see what everyone else was wearing because you wanted to be on the forefront of the cool trends.
0: Oh. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember seeing this segment in Vice. It was probably around 2006, let's say, where they'd taken a girl, you know, like a model down to Canal Street and they were like, we're going to build her an outfit solely out of Canal Street stuff, Mm -hmm. which, if you're not familiar with New York, is like not the fashion center of New York. It's a lot of knockoffs and like really, really cheap clothes. And they, I remember they put her in this black dress and then all these, Crazy fake gold necklaces, and she looked incredible. And that was such an inspiration for me for like the next two years. Yes. Like that's what I would wear to like go to the club, you know. Yes.
1: That it was really important. Partying, going out, just mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. just part. I was part of the culture, and dressing for it was so. It's so much more. I don't know if it's more important. I mean, going out looks these days are. I mean, not like we really go anywhere, but. <laughs>
0: They're not as good. They're not as good. Not I feel as like good. Even in Portland, which had its own subculture of hipsters that uh, one of my friends called the Scarves, uh, and it was very oh mod. It was like you know, think this was the area of, era of the Dandy Warhols, who were from Portland. Yes. So think of that like '70s '60s blender of like rock and roll and mod. Like that's how we all dressed, and yet still we were taking party photos too in the same way. You know, mm-hmm. it was really important to have that good party style. Mm -hmm. So I don't know about you, Kim, but sometimes in photos, I would get Terry Richardson and Dove Charney confused.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that look is pretty synonymous.
0: It was like the glasses. I don't know, but maybe also that they're both creeps. And Dove Charney was the founder of American Apparel, perhaps the most quintessential or at least biggest hipster brand of the odds. And I would argue that American Apparel was probably the beginning of hipsterism becoming a brand, mm-hmm. like something you could buy and
1: sell, right? I've definitely so, met. i definitely met him a couple times. I uh, met. I met Terry a couple of times. You know, it's just that's the scene. And, and Dove did buy out Oak, when, right before I left. So,
0: oh, that's right. That's right. Um,
1: was he creepy seeming? There was a lot of boob looks. Lots of boob yeah, looking. Yeah. <laughs>
0: There's definitely a lot of boob. Looking. There's a lot of
1: like looking at, like, look talking to you, but also looking down at your boobs and then looking at oh. And like, you're just being like, what is this conversation? This is just, this is really uncomfortable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, I mean, spoiler, Dove Charney is gross. <laughs> so, American Apparel was founded by Canadian businessmen. Dove Charney. So we've got
1: another Canadian here too. It's really
0: interesting What does that and, say? No, I'm just kidding. I don't know, but it is interesting, right?
1: And It's it was a founded- trend, Amanda. It's a trend.
0: Trend. Canadians mm-hmm. trending. Well, they, I mean, they were then, not now. Yeah. Canadians are fine. If you're Canadian, you're cool. Don't worry. We're not judging you. <laughs> we're, we're jealous actually. We <laughs> yeah, love totally.
1: To-
0: yeah. So he found, Dove Charney founded American Apparel in 1989 and It's impossible to talk about American Apparel without talking about Dove. But let's just skip that for a minute and talk about the brand, right? In 1997, American Apparel moved to LA. And at this point, the product was primarily tees, specifically the kind that you use as blanks for printing on by bands and other brands. And these blanks were kind of the standard Mm -hmm. for any cool band or brand. Like if you got it and it had that little... I can picture it so clearly that American Apparel tag in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were like, "This is this is a cool shirt, right?" Mm-hmm. And these blanks were different because they had a nicer, thinner fabric, a much better fit than the standard boxy Hanes beefy tees of the '80s and early '90s. Guys, it was a bad time for t-shirts. Okay, they were super thick, and they didn't look good on anyone.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they were they were really thick and the fit was really weird in like in weird spots yes and yeah like, i feel like the neckline was really high usually anyway yeah
0: they were they were weird and at that time i mean he still had a good business going because like i said anyone who was remotely cool was using these blanks he used a subcontractor named sam lynn to do the sewings of all the the tees but a few years later lim and Chinese became partners moving into the huge complex mm. in downtown LA that we now recognize. Well, I guess it's now the former American apparel factory, but it's a huge complex, right? I know, I mean, Kim, you would know better now, but I know they've been trying to rejuvenate it by like putting some stores yes. in there and I think yes. like condos and it's having a Yes. And it is, I will just tell you, it isn't a weird spot. It is in a very industrial part of that section of LA. And it is like an island, I would say, in terms of like what's near it. Like if you live there, you must have a car, and it's weird. It's it. I think it's going to be a tough sell, honestly.
1: Well, they, you know, they do um, these like food carts. It's like on Sundays they were doing these. Like uh, it was like a big. It was an old Brooklyn pop ups. They used to have in Williamsburg. I can't remember what it's what it's called, but it it draws massive amounts of people. Hmm. Hmm. So people yeah. will go, and I know that on the weekends people go. I think the weekdays are just a lot slower.
0: Um. So I guess that's a spoiler that guess what? American Apparel goes out of business. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sure. we jumped ahead. But, you know, I, I I think that building is so iconic to anyone who's lived or worked near downtown L.A. So Lim and, Char- and Charney become partners and they move into that big facility, but they're still focusing on making blank tees for screen printers because this was – a huge business. This was like the dawn of the graphic tee era that still hasn't let up, right? Yes.
1: That was so big. You're right. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right. This is like it was a smart thing for him to grow his business. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, I mean, I'm gonna tell you all kinds of really terrible things about Charney in this conversation. But Dustin and I talk about this all the time that in the world of t-shirts, he is still so widely respected, which is its own thing to me. We're always like, why is that? I think it's because a lot of the people working in that industry are male. They don't see a problem with what he did. I, I I don't know. I don't know. I've talked to some other friends who've worked for other t-shirt companies that are LA based, and they will tell you the same thing that people still worship Charney in this like really odd way. So he wanted to move into retail, but you can't create a retail empire selling only blank t-shirts, you know? Yeah. So he worked on expanding the assortment to things like underwear, bodysuits, dresses, and so on. And this was really the creation of some of his like signature pieces. Like, number one, most of all, the iconic hoodie with the white drawstring. Yes. That hoodie became like the signature top layer for all the hipster uh-huh. dudes and graphic designers, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> like, it was right. like, even in the oddies, it was like, Oh, are you a young professional in a creative role? Then you wear this hoodie to work. You know mm-hmm. what I mean?
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
0: Uh, he, you know, diversified the silhouettes using that thinner fabric into like more basic tees, which for men specifically were a lot more fitted than we'd seen in the past. You know, it was the the rise of men wearing V-necks and then later deep V-necks.
1: Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Deep v mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um holographic fabrics on like leggings, bodysuits, dresses, you name it, sexy high-cut bodysuits, bodycon dresses, leggings of all varieties, because leggings were a cool, stylish thing to wear back then. And we're definitely going to talk about leggings in that episode where we talk about scarves because I think... I had forgotten that leggings were, like, really cool and, like, yes.
1: fashion-forward. Yes. Yeah, so you'd layered them under skirts. Like, it would, denim, skirt, and legging was one of the cool – was, like, a cool look. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he had – I'm. I'm. And, you know, I'm just going to tell you, full disclosure, my favorite legging came from an mm-hmm. American apparel. It was this, like, super high-waisted mm-hmm. one. Oh, so good. Uh, and I will argue, though, that the quality of these clothes was kind of mm-hmm. epic, right? The fabrics. They were whatever. But I mean,
1: it was more they, it was actually pretty affordable for being cool and made in America.
0: Mm-hmm. But it was more expensive than what we were used to being yes. for sure. I wouldn't call these and this is a term that came later elevated basics. <laughs> I wouldn't call them that. But they looked different than anything else that was out there. And American Apparel also had this like very sexy and shocking marketing that really mm-hmm. made the brand. And like I said, the price point was premium for the fabrics, but like Kim said, not that premium. Like it was in the exact sweet spot where it felt aspirational Mm -hmm. for younger people, but like very reasonable for older people, right? So it was appealing to a lot of different types of people. In 2005, sales exceeded 200 million. And I can't say enough, that is massive. Like we never came close to that at Nasty Gal. That was like double Nasty Gal, double mod Mm -hmm. cloth even in one year.
1: On just t-shirts, on basics.
0: I know, crazy, right? And remember, they were making all this stuff in downtown LA. It almost felt like American Apparel had just sort of like come out of nowhere with stores popping up everywhere, like everywhere. Mm -hmm. And those hoodies were just like walking down every street. And I'm going to tell you, retailers were scared by this, especially the retailer that employed Mm -hmm. me. Urban Outfitters, because we felt very strongly and and not, not incorrectly that American Apparel was stealing customers from us,
1: you know? Oh, yeah, they were definitely stealing. Offers. We
0: couldn't just go and copy what American Apparel had, because it would be not very, I don't know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't appeal genuine or authentic to customers. Yeah, it's, so, not,
1: it's not on brand.
0: Right. So we couldn't, we couldn't do that. But damn, did we try to make all of as many hoodies and cheese as we could. And I will tell you this, because I'm going to talk about the advertising in a few minutes. I sat in a meeting at Urban where the concern was that we were not sexy enough, that our imagery wasn't sexy enough. The clothes we sold weren't sexy enough. Like we were getting, I mean, like the creative director was really freaked out by this. And I was like, I feel uncomfortable having this conversation because our customer, no matter how much we want to deny it, is like 14 years old. And I know that because I worked in the stores and rang them up. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And the models that we used in the catalog and on the website were also 14 years old. So it felt it felt wrong to be like sexing them up. I know we did a little bit of that where we started shooting people in sweaters with no pants, which I call the, the nasty gal. Trademark. Uh, but <laughs> it just, yeah. there was another floor set where, like, we had just all the stores had just reworked their entire sales floor for our spring, which they would normally do. And about a week after they finished, they were made to redo a section of their store to look like an American apparel store. So, oh. painting everything white enamel, mm-hmm. putting fluorescent lights in, and putting all this like neon tape up on the walls. And I can look back now and be like, wow, like we were desperate,
1: you know, it does sound desperate.
0: It sounds really desperate. It's like embarrassing. You know, I mean, I had no part in any of these decisions, Mm -hmm. but I think the company was in more trouble or at least concerned that they were in more trouble than we thought we were, you know? And, you know, even I, as a person who worked at urban outfitters would go buy stuff at American apparel because on the surface, American apparel was a good mission. The workers were paid well. They had benefits like health insurance and free lunch. And generally, the conditions were actually really good in the factory. But that's the happy part of the story. Because for all of Dove Charney's work to create this vertical company that treated its factory employees well, Charney was also creating a toxic and incredibly, like I cannot underscore this enough, (laughs) incredibly sexual work environment, both in the offices and in the retail stores. The stories from that era could be a podcast on its own, so I won't go into too much detail here, but just here are a few things. One, every potential employee had to have their picture taken. And if sales were down in a store, this store was required to send these Polaroids to Dove, specifically Dove, who would sit there and decide if there were ugly people working <gasps> there and have them fired. Oh, Because that's why sales were down. Uh, and I, I've had a, uh, quite a few friends over the years who worked there, specifically in the aughts when they were in their heyday, people working in the stores. And they would tell me it was this thing called class pictures where you'd all have to get together and he'd, like the store manager would take everyone's picture because sales were down and Dub wanted to know why.
1: That and and, makes me so violently. I know. I dis- know disgusted. I mean, it. it uh, it's is absolutely insane.
0: Employees were also forced to sign an NDA when they applied for the job, accepting that American Apparel was a sexual environment and that they weren't going to try to sue over it. Imagine that. Wow. And this this sexual environment started at the top. Like Charney was famously quoted as saying, quote, sleeping with people you work with is unavoidable. I mean, this, like all of this already under a 2021 lens is like, how did this, how did this happen? Right. Charney was also the photographer behind most of the company's most famous marketing shoots. In fact, he did almost all the photography. Usually he liked to work in the nude, and he was known for gifting dildos to his favorite models. So I had a boyfriend who worked in American Apparel for quite a while. And I'm going to talk about him more later at the end of this. But he worked in, for American Apparel in LA, then in Portland, and then in Philadelphia. And at one of the stores, I want to say it was the Portland store, you know, Dove got the the class pictures, you know, you want to see who was working in that store. And he picked one of the girls to come to LA and model for him. It was an incredibly traumatic experience that included him making her rub KY jelly all over his naked body. What? During the photo shoot. Yeah. It was really, really bizarre and disturbing.
1: It, well, anyway. Oh my gosh. I mean I I knew that that there was a bunch of stuff happening because I read I'm sure you'll talk about this, that one article, Mm -hmm. but but I didn't know it. I mean, I, God, I guess I just, I just didn't want to look at it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, The ads themselves that were being shot by Charney were iconic in their overt sexiness. They were shocking whether that you saw them on the back of a copy of my vice or on a huge billboard on sunset Boulevard. And I was trying to remember
1: some of them and all I could picture was crotches like just cropped. I just saw one because they're they're trying to. Yes, yeah, yeah, I think it's American Apparel. Yeah, um, they're like trying to recreate. it. Is it American Apparel or was it, it his might be LA
0: Apparel? It might be his because his looks the same.
1: You're right. It's his, and it's they're trying to do the exact. Uh, same and thing. in
0: 2021, it's like no, we don't have time for that. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, he, it's like he's a one trick pony. It seems mm-hmm. like so. For here's some examples of some ads. So. Two women are lounging on beach chairs, stripped down to their 8301 hot shorts. I can picture those shorts. They're so Mm -hmm. iconic. Nothing else. So no top or anything. And the slogan reads, carefree, comfortable, and cotton. You can feel how good it looks. Or a girl wearing the 8315 red boy briefs, which I always thought were very uncomfortable, photographed from her upper thighs to her bare midriff, sitting back on a laundry machine. And it reads in big block letters, Sunday afternoon, washing machine, California. That one was on Vice, I think, multiple times, I swear. Uh So... Alex Spunt was Dove Charney's right-hand person on these photo shoots for, like, probably the peak era of American Apparel. And she told Jane Magazine, quote, we get mixed criticism. Women saying that they love that we don't use real models or you're socially conscious but exploiting women. I disagree. It's a fine line. Of course, the women are sexualized in the images, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's not just about being socially conscious. It's about being a profitable company. I mean, that is raunch culture right there. Mm-hmm. That female chauvinist pig right there. Yep. You know, yes, the, the juggies, <laughs> but it may as well be, right? I think that what's confusing is that if you're in this hipster subculture that is like we are so superior to that mainstream raunch culture and we do everything ironically or creatively then you feel like if you don't think this is awesome, that there's something wrong with you, right? You don't question those ads or Dove Charney's behavior. You question yourself, (laughs) right? Right? In person, Alex Spunt, she went on to say, quote, Dove's not sexist. He wants nothing to do with PC backlash. He rejects early nineties feminism. Hmm. Mm. Sure, he might come across as offensive, but truthfully, he really respects women who work here, and he would never hurt anybody. She added, he's never masturbated in front of me. I mean, Kim, how many co-workers ha- could you say that about, that they have never uh, masturbated in front of you?
1: Thankfully, all of them. <laughs> yeah, I
0: know. What the fuck? She's like, see, so it's like no big deal, right? I mean, the fact that he rejects early 90s feminism,
1: yeah. sorry. But you're isn't a fe- it, it isn't sexist? You're like, um... Yeah,
0: you're sexist. Like, go hang out. Go hang out with Gavin McInnes. Oh, exactly. Yeah, it's gross. So, this is a great transition into seriously one of the most legendary mm-hmm. articles I've ever read in a magazine. It was written by Jane writer Claudine Coe, and it was a feature she wrote on Dove himself in 2004. And I just reread it this week multiple times and it's still just as shocking and upsetting now as it was 17 years ago. And honestly, if a if an article like that came out last year, he would be fully fucking canceled. Yes. Can we just agree on that? Oh, but 2004. Oh, he's just this lovable scamp. So Mm -hmm. here, I'm going to share some stuff with you right now. For example, over the period of days she was interviewing him, so she interviewed him in person a couple times at his apartment and at the, you know, the factory, and they also had various conversations over the phone, which I feel like is him just being a creep or trying to exert some sort of power or trying to sleep with her because the article's not that long, okay? Over that period of all of these conversations, he masturbated in front of her both in person and
1: while on the phone, multiple mm-hmm times My. I know I mean that's either an ish a problem like an actual <laughs> psychological problem or it's like the shock value he's doing this for to get more like PR for being shocking I have no idea. who does that you know that she's gonna write about it I know I th- I think he just can't control himself mm-hmm.
0: you know I think he really is this way and you know once again, this is 2004 and I have, I I've already told you one appalling thing that should have alone canceled him. Right. But I'm going to tell you, remember I was talking about like, uh, oh, we're at urban outfitters. We're freaking out about what's going to happen with American apparel. I mean, that must've been like 2006. So this mm-hmm. article did not damage his reputation at all. No. Uh, I think I just need to show some, like share some, exact quotes from this article to really convey okay. it. Mm-hmm. And I would just say that Mr. Christensen, if you're listening, you might want to skip this section.
1: <laughs> I, I, mean, you, I feel like Mr. Christensen is basically just for any of our listeners is, is it's basically if you've got a child or, or someone who's sensitive just have them them, just turn it off or have them go out of the room yeah
0: yeah or if it's your dad, or my
1: dad also yeah sorry
0: yeah really dads of all Mm -hmm. ages so she said quote i asked him how he relaxed oral sex he says settling into a chair behind a cloud of smoke i love it i'm a bit of a dirty guy but people like that right now oh i mean that is like barf city right That's also so odd," Mm -hmm. he said. "quote I think sex motivates everything," he says. "That peering at me from behind his boxy '70s frames, you know the Mm -hmm. type. It motivates my work too. You don't want something that's sexually driven, like panties, but then have them made in a horrible sweatshop. I guess I never thought of panties as being primarily sexually driven, which I think says something about him as well, right?" His assistant, Iris Alonzo, who went on, by the way, to found Everybody World, which we can talk about later. And you and I mm-hmm. have talked about this offline. He, she founded that with Carolina Crespo. She was actually also quoted in this article by Claudine Co. And she said at the time, "quote I think it's really healthy to have an orgasm four times a day. It's got to be great for business. And it was definitely implied that He has, at the bare minimum, masturbated in front of her on a pretty regular basis. Wow. I will say here, just food for thought, what do we think of two women who worked in this environment directly with Dove? Like Iris was like with him every day, starting a company and using his factory to manufacture because that's what everybody world is doing. And I like, I can't, you Um, know what I mean? I agree. What is wrong with you? So needless to say, eventually all of this was Charney's downfall. Around L.A., everyone, literally everyone you meet, has a terrible story about him. And I've worked with some previous American Apparel employees who also had horrific stories about his brutal temper. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. And a few years ago, man, I mean... I would say probably about four years ago, maybe five years ago, a podcast called Startup. It's a Gimlet Media production, yes. I believe. I'll link to mm-hmm. it. They did a season following Dove around as he tried to start his new company, LA Apparel. And the wow. thing that stood out most for me is his temper is frightening. Frightening. Like hmm. this guy, he's such a tough character for me because mostly he is terrible, but then he does care about workers' rights, kind mm-hmm. of. We'll get to that too. He's a complicated character for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, so, I, I I've heard that he's also extreme. He's really intelligent and really understands, you know, how to to run these businesses and things. Uh-huh. That's what I've heard, which is I how he's been that. so successful. Is just uh-huh. just very smart man.
0: He's just like all in or something, and he just cannot yeah. control himself. So basically what happened is there was just lawsuit after lawsuit for sexual harassment and related workplace violations. Some were settled, some went to court. Most of them were kept very hush hush. So Mm -hmm. I don't know that much about them, but I know they were bad and they were for a lot of money. These settlements, I remember that was the thing that really came out because eventually the company reached a point of bankruptcy, which was the result of bleeding money from settling these lawsuits and overexpanding into retail or doing crazy stuff like, now we're gonna buy a shoe factory.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: you will remember that it seemed like there were as many American apparel stores as Starbucks there for a yes, while. I mean, yes. they were everywhere. We had two in Portland. Our population wasn't that big at that point, you know? And I remember as they filed for bankruptcy, You know, the only website that I remember really regularly speaking about what was going on with Charney was um, Gawker. And they would tell you that, like, these settlements were what was really draining the company because Mm -hmm. they were huge and they were frequent. Like, basically, they were paying off women all the time that he had done bad things to. And he was sleeping with people who worked there, too. So it's, like, just a disaster, right? Anyway, there were various reorganizations and even attempts at using venture capital investment to save the company. But eventually Charny was ousted. And pretty shortly after the company was bought by Gildan, which for a long time was basically like when, back when American apparel was in the business of just making blanks, Gildan was their number one competitor. Mm -hmm. All the stores were closed, but the business does live on, sort of online. It's kind of weird. <laughs> I, I, rem- I remember
1: having like recruiters, like right, t- I think right. Me after too. Us, no, Yale, I think we yeah. both were having these recruiters reach out because they're like, oh, we're trying to rebuild American apparel. And I was like, oh, I feel like I hear some really bad things. Like, no, it's really great. But then, you know, the recruiter would be like, oh, no, now they're going in a different direction. They'd be like, oh, no, they're going in this direction. I was just like, oh, I don't, oh, this doesn't sound good.
0: (laughs) I So I knew at that point that there was a woman who would come from JCPenney running the show. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. I am maybe more interested. And I was supposed to go in for an interview that week for something. I don't know. It was like e-commerce buyer or something they never got back to me to confirm the interview and the next week they just closed like that was it yeah so it was right around that time when when nasti yes. yeah so last year charney was back in the news with his new brand la apparel i urge you to check out their website because it looks exactly like American apparel, Uh same super sexy, somehow oily marketing and photography. I'm sure the photos are taken by Dove Mm -hmm. and everything is made in LA. And it begs the question, could maybe Dove have a different idea to try? (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like, why would you do that? And like, how removed from the world and wrapped up in yourself are you if you think, that any of that is relevant and appealing
1: in 2021. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody everybody, world has done a much better job, obviously, coming with a fresh perspective
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it seems
1: a, a sustainable fair. message. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he even owns a little bit of that or something. To-
0: I, I think so. I think so, for sure. So in June, a physician reached out to the LA Health Department to express concern About the LA Apparel factory being a hotspot for COVID. Basically, this doctor, I'm pretty sure if I recall, they came from a clinic. They were seeing a lot of people testing positive for COVID who all worked at LA Apparel. At that point, based on what this doctor knew, about 150 employees had tested positive. The health department swooped in and discovered that social distancing wasn't being implemented. Workers were supposed to be separated by plexiglass, but they were being separated by cardboard boxes. <laughs> Hand sanitizers and masks were not in masks were not in use. And furthermore, LA Apparel was unwilling to give the health department a full list of its employees, which says to me that they were definitely hiding something, whether it's that more workers were infected than they wanted to let on, mm-hmm. or that there were undocumented workers mm-hmm. in there. I'm not really sure. At one point, the company wouldn't even allow the health department to have access to the facility. So you know bad stuff is going on, right?
1: They have have lots of things to hide.
0: Yes. Yes. So the health department closed them down. Now, the health department told Dove, listen, you can reopen after all the infected and exposed workers are fever-free for 10 days. In fact, you can reopen whenever any of them hit that point and have them come in. But like, obviously- you are going to not have a full workforce. It's going to take you a lot longer to accomplish, you know, the orders you're working on. But you can do that. But they were very clear that LA Apparel was not permitted to reopen the factory with new employees, mm-hmm. therefore exposing them to other employees that had been also exposed to COVID, right? Well, guess what happened? Dove brought in some new workers anyway. Mm-hmm. The city found out, and they shut the factory down again. And I want to say, 375 employees that the health department knows of tested positive for COVID, and four wow. died.
1: You know? Can, do you know how many employees that that they that they employ? How many how many people well, actually work there in total? I mean, that's so, a lot of people for know, for this business.
0: I am a little confused because, you know, Dove wasn't very forthcoming with the health department. One of his defenses was he was like, Yeah, but it's only 10% of our workforce that has COVID, which I mean, only 10%. Like, that's really bad. Thousands um, of
1: people also have, working yeah, for you.
0: Yeah. And the health department was like, Actually, it's more than 10%. I think, based on what I can gather, that at that point when I was like early on saying that like 150 employees had had COVID at that point, that he was saying that it was only 10% then. So let's say maybe Mm -hmm. there are 1,500, but ultimately, I mean, you know, tons more people there had asymptomatic cases and didn't know and spread it. Like, let's be real. We know so much more now. But he was trying to basically be like, no, it's like no big deal. You know, we are, he, he posted this, like, I don't know, it was like a screenshot of something he had typed up on Instagram, which gazillions of people liked, which infuriated me. That was basically like, we have been leading in terms of COVID safety, like leading the industry by, you know, masks and hand sanitizer and social distancing. And like, we've set the tone for manufacturing in LA and people are like, yeah, fuck yeah, that's great. Oh, you're the best either dove is lying or the LA department of health is lying right. and you know who I'm going to side with here, you know? And,
1: and it the doesn't juror, matter. the jurors yeah. that are reporting right. on. Or- yeah, that's
0: right. And like, I, j- I just, uh, you know what infuriates me is that like, no matter what, more people are going to see that Instagram post than are going to read the LA times and see the article yeah. with all the information from the LA department of health. You can actually go to the LA department of health website and find their like full report on it, which is what I read. Like they, they're not making that stuff up. And I would ask you, would you rather buy something from a company that paid a fair wage and treated the factory employees well, but was led by a sex pest who created a culture of fear and humiliation for the other employees. And I guess also would expose them to COVID mm-hmm. or would you rather buy something that was made in China, but mm-hmm. no one was sexually harassed along the way. You know what I mean? That you like, know
1: of exactly. Yeah, I
0: know well, that you know of, but it's like, that's the thing with American apparel and LA apparel is that you're like on the surface, it's this really great thing that proves that manufacturing can cap ha- happen here in the United States. And workers can actually make a good living from it. And you don't want that to be ruined. But then Dove is the only one doing it. And he's just like, at least in the past, I could say, yes, he is a total creep. But at least he believes in workers' rights. But then I see how he's exposing everyone to COVID last year. And I'm like, maybe I don't see that about you. You know, like maybe you're a hypocrite. I, I don't know. I find him to be such a confusing character, but I would never work with
1: him you know yeah i He's mean it's just it is shocking that he would that that would happen at the factory because you know i, I know the mask he was making masks and mm-hmm. mask sales are just insane like the, like the amount of money you well, can especially make then of, yeah especially then can make off of masks so his production must have been really heavy but the fact that he didn't take precautions which aren't Huge. I think you had to reduce your capacity, which obviously would then reduce the output. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. even if he didn't reduce capacity and expose humans to the virus, and that would just automatically reduce your, your output. It just seems so
0: odd. so weird. And I'll tell you that it came out much later that he was working on a contract that he'd gotten from, I want to say the Air Force, for $2.5 million to make masks. Mm-hmm. And he was awarded that contract under some dubious conditions in which he was supposed to be a minority owned company, which Duff Turney is a white dude from Canada. Yeah. Right. So the whole thing was super sketchy, but you also were like, I see why you were like desperate to get this order done. It doesn't yeah. make it okay. It doesn't. But, but it's.
1: Yes. And, you so, know, no wonder there were so many people working at that time too.
0: Yes. Yes. Totally. Totally. i I think that the 375 people we know about is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. I think that is why he didn't want to share his full employee list. Yeah. I think that more people were sick and he knew about it, possibly even died, and he just didn't want the blowback. Or there were undocumented people there, and I don't know, maybe that would affect his contract with the U.S. Air Force. I have no idea. But I also know he received a pretty decent chunk of change from the PPP loans as well. Gosh, yes, of course. Yeah, it's, it's just tough. It's, I, I feel like it's so iconic of the aughts and it's funny to hear him like back in the news in a weird way because you just assume he had been kind of canceled. And I'll tell you, when you listen to that startup podcast from a few years ago, you do get the vibe that Dove is like desperate and broken, you know?
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: Um, I do have one last thing to say about American Apparel because I wanted to end this on a happy note which is how I paid for a huge back tattoo and a trip to Argentina, thanks to American Apparel. Huh. And that okay. is, I mentioned that I had a boyfriend. I'm just going to go ahead and name him on the show because this is a fake name anyway, Baxter, who worked at American Apparel for a very long time. One thing about Baxter, well, one, he was very, very fun. He was the most fun boyfriend. He was also a hot mess. And most importantly, <laughs> he was a kleptomaniac. <laughs> And I mean, like, there's no, you're probably like, oh, I have some friends who like to steal. No, trust me. No, if there were like a stealing Olympics, Baxter would win. All right. Wow.
1: And,
0: like, for example, we'd go out for dinner, he'd come out of the bathroom and have stolen the trash can from the bathroom. What? That really happened. that trash can is at my friend Raina's house now. I'm pretty sure it's mm-hmm. carried on through our friend group for a long time. Or like, When we lived together, we would have a million half used bottles of ketchup that he'd stolen from restaurants. But one thing that he really loved to do was steal from American Apparel. Wow. And, like, biblical amounts of stuff came. So when he lived in L.A., he would just fill up a trash bag every shift and give clothes to all the homeless people he encountered on the way home. Mm. When he came to Portland, because he hated this company so much, right? Hated Because he was like, you know, he's like a punk dude who's like you know, against sexism and all this stuff that somehow is working at American Apparel and is a klepti- kleptomaniac. I
1: don't <laughs> yes. to be A I recipe, don't... a recipe for this. A recipe. He would come
0: home from work every day with a trash bag of stuff too and dole it out to everyone in our friend group. And we'll tell you this, he was not the only one. He would talk about coworkers coming in on their day off with like Ikea bags and filling it with shit wow. and walking out the door and they just the no one cared. The loss.
1: The no loss. I know.
0: I can't even imagine what their shrink was because everywhere he worked, people were stealing like crazy. Mm. So what this meant for me is that I had everything that American Apparel sold in that era, sometimes in multiple sizes and colorways. I mean, I had packs of those like, striped tube socks that I'd never even open or worn. You know, mm-hmm. they were just piling up and I was like, "Baxter, please stop." But he just kept bringing me things. I know that after <laughs> we after we broke up, he continued to work in American Apparel for a few more months and I think he got fired for punching someone in the face and Wait, his cl- like uh, like a customer or a coworker. I think a coworker because everybody was always like coked up and wasted and stuff mm-hmm. there too. It was always weird. And I remember <laughs> We hooked up, you know, like six months after we broke up briefly and I went over to, he was living in this like punk house in West Philly in the attic and a long one wall was just like easily a hundred pairs of those slim slacks that he had stolen. And his plan was, he was going to wear these for the rest of his life. <laughs> but like, was, like so shitty sometimes they rip after three wears. Glad I got them for free. I mean, like there was like, I don't know, 10,000 dollars with the pants I'm, I'm in his room. Like-
1: Time supply of American
0: apparel, American apparel. Wow. Yeah, slim size. So anyway, we break up and I have all this American apparel shit. And I was like, I don't want this. This is even how I dress. So I started <laughs> selling it all on eBay. And there was a massive market for it, specifically in Europe. Mm-hmm. And I would ship to overseas. So I was shipping American apparel, like, nonstop. I... Was selling his stuff for like half price and still made thousands and thousands of dollars. Wow. And so I went to South America.
1: You know? Amazing. I know. Thank you, Baxter. Oh, it's <laughs> Baxter. I'm so curious where Baxter is now.
0: I think he's back in LA and he's married. But uh, oh, yeah, he, d- I mean, he was such a weird character. And one of the reasons we broke up is that I could not handle the stealing. I was just like, this is not who I am. Like, I'm never going to go in a store and steal stuff. And I feel guilty accepting stolen stuff from you or even living with you, knowing that you're stealing. Because he had reached this point where he was like, I only eat stolen food now. (laughs) Oh my God. I guess I don't have to cook anymore. That's great. And so he would just steal food constantly and eat that. Or I would be like, hey, can you pick up some toilet paper? In my mind, I'm thinking, go to the store and pay money for it. I mean, he had a job. Instead, he would go steal, he would go from Starbucks to Starbucks stealing toilet paper for a few hours and then bring home all these weird industrial rolls of toilet paper. <laughs> oh, God. And I was just like, you know, I, I've i worked retail for a long time. I come from a family that has jobs like that. I see how when shrink is high, it's the employees who suffer. Like, you don't get a raise. They make things hard. They're dumping your bags. They're not letting yeah. you go in the bathroom when you need to. Like. Yeah. I just, I can't be around this anymore. And that was ultimately why we broke up.
1: Mm, interesting. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So,
0: so I guess that concludes our first episode about hipsters.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that was exciting. That was so interesting and so fascinating. And it did take a very long time to research. Yeah. But I'm so happy that I was able to to do that and be able to look back and reflect on that time period. Yeah. I, feel, I guess we'll be back next week with more
0: hot hipster of the aughts action. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again. Bye.
1: Bye.